Section 25 of The Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 7 Rome and the Temporal Power by Richard Garnett, Part 3. With all his triumphs, Alexander was ill at ease. The robber kings who had partitioned Naples had gone to war over their booty. The Spaniards were prevailing in the kingdom, but the French threatened to come to the rescue with an army marching through Italy from north to south, and Alexander trembled, lest they should interfere with his son's possessions or with his own. He began to see what a mistake had been committed in allowing powerful monarchs to establish themselves on his borders. If the Lord, he said to the Venetian ambassador, had not put discord between France and Spain, where should we be? This utterance escaped him in one of a series of interviews with Gistinian reported in the latter's dispatches, which, if Alexander's sincerity could be trusted, would do him honor as a patriotic Italian prince. He appears or affects to have entirely returned to the ideas of the early years of his pontificate, when he formed leagues to keep the foreigner out of Italy. He paints the wretched condition of Italy in eloquent language, declares that her last hope consists in an alliance between himself and Venice, and calls upon the Republic to cooperate with him ere too late. It was too late already. Had it been otherwise, the cautious, selfish Venetians would have been the last to have risked anything for the general good. Alexander must have allied himself either with Spain or with France. He might have decided the contest, but would himself have run great risk of being subjugated by the victor. A quite unforeseen stroke delivered the papacy from this peril, and annihilating all Alexander's projects for the grandeur of his house, placed the great work of consolidating the temporal power in more disinterested, though hardly more scrupulous hands. On August the 5th he caught a chill while supping with Cardinal Cornetto, on the 12th he felt ill, and on the 18th a fever carried him off. The suddenness of the event, the rapid decomposition of the corpse, and the circumstance that Cesare Borgia was simultaneously taken ill, accredited the inevitable rumors of poison, and his decease became the nucleus of a labyrinthine growth of legend and romance. Modern investigation has dispelled it all, and has left no reasonable doubt that the death was entirely natural. Alexander's character has undoubtedly gained by the scrutiny of modern historians. It was but natural that one, accused of so many crimes, and unquestionably the cause of so many scandals, should alternately appear as a tyrant and as a voluptuary. Neither description suits him. The groundwork of his character was extreme exuberance of nature. The Venetian ambassador calls him a carnal man, not implying anything morally derogatory, but meaning a man of sanguine temperament, unable to control his passions and emotions. This perplexed the cool and impassioned Italians of the diplomatic type, then prevalent among rulers and statesmen, and their misapprehensions have unduly prejudiced Alexander, 
who in truth was not less but more human than most princes of his time. This excessive carnality brought in him for good and ill. Unrestrained by moral scruples or by any spiritual conception of religion, he was betrayed by it into gross sensuality of one kind, though in other respects he was temperate and abstemious. In the more respectable guise of family affection, it led him to outrage every principle of justice, though even here he only performed a necessary work, which could not, as one of his agents said, have been accomplished by holy water. On the other hand, his geniality and joyousness preserved him from tyranny in the ordinary sense of the term. Considering the absolute character of his authority and the standard of his times, it is surprising how little, outside the regions of la haute politique, is charged against him. His sanguine constitution also gave him tremendous driving power. Pope Alexander, says a later writer, censuring the dilatoriness of Leo X, did put will a thing, and it was done. As a ruler, careful of the material weal of his people, he ranks among the best of his age. As a practical statesman, he was the equal of any contemporary. But his insight was impaired by his lack of political morality. He had nothing of the higher wisdom, which comprehends the characteristics and foresees the drift of an epoch, and he did not know what a principle was. The general tendency of investigation, while utterly shattering all idle attempts to represent him as a model pope, has been to relieve him of the most odious imputations against his character. There remains the charge of secret poisoning from motives of cupidity, which indeed appears established, or nearly so, only in a single instance, but this may imply others. Cesare Borgia afterwards told Machiavelli that he deemed himself to have provided against everything that could possibly happen at the death of his father, but had never thought that he himself might at the same time be disabled by sickness. He succeeded in seizing the Pope's treasure in the Vatican, but failed in securing the castle of St. Angelo, and was obliged to adopt a deferential tone towards the cardinals. Alexander had gone far towards filling the sacred college with his own countrymen, and although the conclave is said by a contemporary to have been more decreed for venal practices than any before it, the influence of Ferdinand of Aragon, conjoined with that of Cardinal della Rovere, who found the peer not yet ripe for himself, decided the election in favor of one who assuredly had no share in these practices, the upright Cardinal of Siena. Something may be ascribed to the law already noticed, which frequently fills the place of a deceased pope with his entire opposite. This may be deemed to have been exemplified anew when, after a sickly pontificate of twenty-seven days, the mild Pius III was replaced, November the first, by the most pugnacious and imperious personality in the sacred college, Cardinal della Rovere, who evinced his ambition of rivaling, if not excelling, Alexander, by assuming the name of Julius II. His election had not been untainted by simoniacal practices, but cannot, like Alexander's, be said to have been mainly procured by them. It was rather due to an arrangement with Cesare Borgia, who had the simplicity to expect others to keep faith with him, 
who had kept faith with none, and permitted the cardinals of his party to vote for Della Rovere, on condition that he should be confirmed as gonfaloniere of the church. History has never made it a reproach to Julius that he soon incarcerated Borgia in St. Angelo, and applied himself to stripping him of his possessions in the Romagna. In some cases the exiled lords had reinstated themselves, in others difficulties arose from the fidelity of Cesarus Castellans, who refused to obey even the orders extorted from him to surrender their castles. When at last everything had been got from him that could be got, Julius, instead of secretly putting him to death, as Alexander would have done, permitted him to depart to Naples, where he was arrested and sent prisoner into Spain. His career was yet to be illustrated by a romantic escape and a soldier's death in an obscure skirmish in Navarre. The Romagna could not forget that he had been, to her, one just ruler in the place of many tyrants, and he retained partisans there to the last. Had he survived until the new pope's war with his brother-in-law, the Duke of Ferrara, he would probably have commanded the latter's troops, and a new page of conquest might have opened for him. Julius had hated Alexander above all men, but it was now incumbent upon him to resume Alexander's work, repair the damage it had sustained, and prosecute it to a successful conclusion. His record as cardinal had not been a bright one. When in favor with Pope Innocent, he had failed to inspire him with energy except for an unjust war, or to reform any abuse in the papal administration. As the enemy of Alexander, he had put himself in the wrong by turbulence and unpatriotic intrigue. If he had not done Italy infinite harm by his invitations to France to invade her, the reason was merely that the French would have come without him. When ostensibly reconciled to Alexander, he had shown much servility. His private life had been licentious. Though not illiterate, he was no proficient in literature, and one looks in vain for any service rendered by him as cardinal to religion, letters, or art. Yet there was always something in him which conveyed the impression of a superior character. He overawed others, and was never treated with disrespect. There was indeed a natural magnanimity in him which adverse circumstances had checked, but which came out so soon as he obtained liberty of action. Unlike his predecessor, he had an ideal of what a pope should be, defective indeed, but embodying all the qualities particularly demanded by the age. He thought far more of the church in her temporal than in her spiritual aspect. But Luther was not yet, and for the moment the temporal need seemed the more pressing. He possessed a great advantage over his predecessor in his freedom from nepotism. He had no son, and was content with a modest provision for his daughter, and not only seemed but was personally disinterested in the wars which he undertook for the aggrandizement of the church. The vehemence which engaged him in such undertakings made him terrible and indefatigable in the persecution of them. But as he was deficient in the prudence and discernment of his predecessor, it frequently hurried him into inconsiderate actions and speeches, detrimental to his interests and dignity. 
Transplanted, however, to another sphere, it secured him a purer and more desirable glory than any that he could obtain by conquest. Having once determined it to be a pope's duty to encourage the arts, he entered upon the task as he would have entered upon a campaign, and achieved results far beyond the ambition of his most refined and accomplished predecessors. His treatment of individual artists was often harsh and niggardly, but of his dealings with art, as a whole, Bishop Creighton rightly declares. He did not merely employ great artists, he impressed them with a sense of his own greatness, and called out all that was strongest and noblest in their own nature. They knew that they served a master who was in sympathy with themselves. While Julius was ridding himself of Cesare Borgia, a new enemy appeared, too formidable for him to contend with at the time. In the autumn of 1503, the Venetians suddenly seized upon Rimini and Faenza. The aggression was most audacious, and Venice was to find that it was also most unwise. It was no less disastrous to Italy, giving the policy of Julius an unhappy bent from which it could never afterwards free itself. Notwithstanding the errors of his younger days, there is no reason to doubt that he was really a sound patriot, to whom the expulsion of the foreigner always appeared a desirable, if remote, ideal, and who had no wish to ally himself more closely than he could help with Spain or France. He now had before him only the alternatives of calling in the foreigner, or of submitting to an outrageous aggression, and it is not surprising that he preferred the former. He was aware of the mischief that he and Venice were perpetrating between them. Venice, he said, makes both herself and me the slaves of everyone, herself that she may keep, me that I may win back. But for this we might have been united to find some way to free Italy from foreigners. It would have been wiser and more patriotic to have waited until some conjunction of circumstances should arise to compel Venice to seek his alliance. But when the fire of his temper and the magnitude of the injury are considered, it can but appear natural that he should have striven to create such a conjuncture himself. This was no difficult matter. Every European state envied Venice's wealth and prosperity, and her uniformly selfish policy had left her without a friend. By September 1504, Julius had succeeded in bringing about an anti-Venetian league between Maximilian and Louis XII of France, which indeed came to nothing, but sufficiently alarmed the Venetians to induce them to restore Ravenna and Kervia, which had long been in their possession, retaining their recent acquisitions, Faenza and Rimini. The Duke of Urbino, the Pope's kinsman, undertook that he would not reclaim these places. Julius dexterously evaded making any such pledge, and the seed of war went on, slowly ripening. During this period, Julius performed two other actions of importance. He restored their castles to the Colonna and the Orsini, a retrograde step, whose ill consequences he was himself to experience and he promulgated a bull against simony in papal elections. His own had not been pure, and the measure may have been intended to silence rumors, but it is quite as likely to have been the fruit of genuine compunction. 
In any case, it distinguishes him favorably from his predecessor, who regarded such iniquities as matters of course, while Julius signalized them as abuses to be rooted out. Nor were his efforts vain. Though bribery in the coarse form of actual money payment is known to have been attempted at more recent papal elections, it does not appear to have actually determined any. While nursing his wrath against Venice, Julius sought to compensate the losses of the church by acquisitions in other quarters. Upon the fall of Cesare Borgia, Urbino and Perugia had reverted to their former lords. Ferrara had now lost the protection insured to it by the Borgia marriage, and the tyranny of the Bentivoli in Bologna incited attack. The Duke of Urbino was Julius' kinsman, and Ferrara was too strong, but the Pope thought he might well assert the claims of the Church to Perugia and Bologna, especially as their conquest could be represented as a crusade for the deliverance of the oppressed, and no imputation of nepotism could be made against him as against his predecessors. Yet he could not avoid exposing himself to the reproach incurred by an alliance with foreigners against Italians. Bologna was under the protectorate of the French king, and Julius could do nothing until he had dissolved this alliance and received a promise of French cooperation. This having been obtained through the influence of King Louis's prime minister, Cardinal d'Amboise, procured by the promise of three cardinalships for his nephews, Julius quitted Rome in August 1506 at the head of his own army, a sight which Christendom had not seen for ages. Perugia was yielded without a contest, on the stipulation that the Baglioni should not be entirely expelled from the city. Julius continued his march across the Apennines, and on October the 7th issued a bull, deposing Giovanni Bentivoglio and excommunicating him and his adherents as rebels. Eight thousand French troops simultaneously advanced against Bologna from Milan. Bentivoglio, unable to resist the double attack, took refuge in the French camp, and the city opened its gates to Julius, who might boast of having vindicated his rights, and enlarged the papal dominions without spilling a drop of blood. His triumph was commemorated by Michel Angelo's colossal statue, destined to a brief existence, but famous in the history of art. But Julius was a better judge of artists than of ministers, and the misconduct of the legates successively appointed by him to govern Bologna alienated the citizens and prepared the way for fresh revolutions. The easy conquest of Bologna could not but whet the Pope's appetite for revenge upon Venice, and ought to have shown the Venetians how formidable an enemy he could be. They continued, nevertheless, to cling with tenacity to their ill-gotten acquisitions in the Romagna, unaware of, or indifferent to, their peril from the jealousy of the chief states of Europe. No other power, it was true, had any just cause of quarrel with them. Their most recent acquisitions in Lombardy had indeed been basely obtained as the price of cooperation in the overthrow of Ludovico Sforza. The Neapolitan cities, though acquired by the grant of Ferrantino, had been retained by convents at the destruction of Frederigo. They were, notwithstanding, the stipulated price of these iniquities 
which the conquerors of Milan and Naples had no right to reclaim. Their late gains from Maximilian had been made in open war and confirmed by solemn treaty. These considerations weighed nothing with him or with France, and at Julius' instigation these powers concluded on December 10, 1508, the famous treaty known as the League of Cambrai, by which the continental dominions of Venice were to be divided between them, reservation being made of the claims of the Pope, Mantua and Ferrara. Spain, if she acceded, was to have the Neapolitan cities occupied by Venice. Dalmatia was to go to Hungary. Even the Duke of Savoy was tempted by the bait of Cyprus. It seemed to occur to none that they were destroying Europe's bulwark against the Ottomite. Julius, though the mainspring of the League, avoided joining it openly until he saw that the Allies were committed to the war. His assent was given on March 25, 1509. On April the 7th, the Venetians offered to restore Faenza and Rimini. But the Pope was too deeply engaged, and probably thought that the offer was only made to divide the Allies, and would be withdrawn when it had served its purpose. On April 27th, he published a violent bull of excommunication. His troops entered the Romagna, but the Emperor and Spain held back, and left the conquest of Lombardy to France. It proved unexpectedly easy. The Venetians were completely defeated at Agnadello on May 14th, and the French immediately possessed themselves of Lombardy as far as the Minchio. They halted there, having obtained all they wanted. Maximilian had not yet appeared on the scene, and the extraordinary panic into which the Venetians seemed to fall is to be accounted for not so much by the severity of their defeat as by the mutiny or dispersion of the Venetian militia. They hastened to restore the disputed towns in the Romagna to the Pope, an act right and wise in itself, but carried out with unthinking precipitation. If the towns had been bravely defended, Julius would probably have met the Venetians halfway, as they had no longer any hold upon him. He remained inexorable, and went at his wrath with every token of contumely and harshness. They were equally submissive to Maximilian, who was by this time in partial occupation of the country to the east of the Minkio. Nor was it until July the 17th that, encouraged by the scantness of his troops and the slenderness of his pecuniary resources, they plucked up courage to recover Padua. Stung by this mortification, Maximilian succeeded in assembling a formidable army, but Venice had in the meantime reorganized her scattered forces and obtained fresh recruits from Dalmatia and Albania. Padua was besieged during the latter half of September, but the siege was raised early in October. Most of Maximilian's conquests were recovered by the Venetians, and their spirit rose fast, until it was again humbled by the destruction of their fleet on the Po by the artillery of the Duke of Ferrara. All this time Julius had been browbeating the Venetians. Not content with the recovery of his territory, he demanded submission on all ecclesiastical questions. Venice was to surrender its claims to nominate to bishoprics and benefices, to entertain appeals in ecclesiastical cases, and to tax or try the clergy. Freedom of trade was also demanded, with other minor concessions. It seems almost surprising 
that the Venetians, who had no great cause to fear the Pope's military or naval strength, and knew that he was beginning to quarrel with the King of France, should have yielded. In fact, this resolution was only adopted by a bare majority in the council, and they guarded themselves by a secret protest as respected their ecclesiastical concessions. The Pope's successors soon found that non ligand for dera facta metu. Venice never permanently recovered her possessions in the Romagna, but most of her territorial losses in other quarters were regained by the Treaty of Noyon in 1516. A blow unconnected with Italian politics, and against which war and diplomacy were powerless, had nevertheless been struck by the diversion to Lisbon of her gainful oriental traffic, consequent upon the doubling of the Cape of Good Hope. A brilliant period in letters and the arts lay yet before her. She was still to war with the Turk in Cyprus and the Moria, but she soon ceased to rank as a first-class power. Absolution was formally granted to Venice on February the 24th, 1510, and Julius thus became openly detached from the League of Cambrai. The incident marks the definitive consolidation of the Papal States, for although districts were occasionally lost and others occasionally added during the agitations of the following confused years, such variations were but temporary and it was long ere the papal territory was finally rounded off by the acquisition of Ferrara and Arbino. From his own point of view, Julius had done great things. By dexterous diplomacy and martial daring, he had preserved, or recovered, or augmented Alexander's conquests, and given no suspicion of any intention of alienating them for the benefit of his own family. He was now, what so many popes had vainly sighed to be, master in his own house, and a considerable temporal sovereign. Yet, if he was at all accessible to the feelings with which he has been usually credited, he must have reflected with remorse that this end had only been accomplished by allying himself with foreigners for the humiliation, almost the ruin, of the only considerable Italian state. He might naturally wish to repair the mischief he had done by humbling the foreigners in their turn. Other causes concurred, his dread of the preponderance of the French in northern Italy, his grief at the subjugation of his own city of Genoa by them. Above all, it must be feared, his desire to aggrandize the church by annexing the dominions of the Duke of Ferrara, who was protected by France. Alfonso of Ferrara, had been a useful ally in the Pope's attack upon Venice, but he had declined to follow his example in making peace with her. He was personally obnoxious as Alexander V's son-in-law, and his salt works at Comacchio competed with the Pope's own. It is remarkable that Julius should be indebted to the least justifiable of his actions for much of his reputation with posterity. It would be difficult to conceive anything more scandalous than his sudden turning round upon his allies so soon as they had helped him to gain his ends. But he proclaimed, and no doubt with a certain measure of sincerity, that his ultimate aim was the deliverance of Italy from the foreigner, and Italian patriots have been so rejoiced to find an Italian prince actually taking up arms against the foreigner 
instead of merely talking about it, that they have canonized him, and canonized he will remain. It is also to be remarked that the transactions of the remaining years of his pontificate were on a grander scale than heretofore, and better adapted to exhibit the picturesque aspects of his fiery and indomitable nature. The war was precipitated by an incident which seemed to give the Pope an opportunity of beginning it with advantage. Louis XII had refused to grant the Swiss the terms which they demanded for the renewal of their alliance with him, which ensured him the services, on occasion, of a large number of mercenaries. Julius stepped into his place, and the Swiss agreed to aid him with 15,000 men, May 1510. Elated at this, he resolved to begin the war without delay, though his overtures to other allies had been coldly received, and even the grant of the investiture of Naples, a studied affront to the French king, had failed to bring Ferdinand of Aragon to his side. The Venetians, however, still unreconciled to France, and thirsting for revenge, on the Duke of Ferrera, espoused the Pope's cause. The first act of hostility was a bull excommunicating the Duke of Ferrara, which, Peter Martyr says, made his hair stand on end, and in which the salt trade was not forgotten. The popes failed to perceive how by reckless misuse they were blunting the weapon which they would soon need for more spiritual ends. Louis paid Julius back in his own coin, convoking the French clergy to protest, and threatening a general council. Modena was reduced by the papal troops, but when in October Julius reached Bologna, he received the mortifying intelligence that the Swiss had deserted him, pretending that they had not understood that they were to fight against France. This left the country open to the French commander Chaumont, who, profiting by the division of the Pope's forces between Modena and Bologna, advanced so near the latter city, that with a little more energy he could have captured Julius, who was confined to his bed by a fever. While the French general negotiated, Venetian reinforcements appeared and rescued the Pope, well-nigh delirious between fever and fright. When he recovered, he undertook the reduction of the castles of Concordia and Mirandola, commanding the road to Ferrara. Mirandola held out until the winter, and the Pope, enraged at the slowness of his generals, proceeded thither in person, and busied himself with military operations, tramping in the deep snow, lodging in a kitchen, swearing at his officers, joking with the soldiers, and endearing himself to the camp by his fund of anecdote and his rough wit. Mirandola fell at last, but the Pope could make no further progress. Negotiations were set on foot, but came to nothing. In May 1511, the new French general Trivulzio made a descent on Bologna, which was greatly exasperated by the misgovernment of the legate Alitosi, expelled the Pope's troops, and reinstated the Bentivonli. Michelangelo's statue of Julius was hurled from its pedestal, and the Duke of Ferrara, though a reputed lover of art, could not refrain from the practical sarcasm of melting it into a cannon. Alidosi, gravely suspected of treachery, was cut down by the Duke of Urbino's own hand. Mirandola was retaken, and Julius returned to Rome, apparently beaten at every point, but as resolute as ever. 
all Europe was being drawn into his broils. He looked to Spain, Venice, and England to aid him, and this actually came to pass. Before, however, the Holy League could take effect, Julius fell alarmingly ill. On August the 21st his life was despaired of, and the Orsini and Colonia, whom he had inconsiderately reinstated, prepared to renew their ancient conflicts. One of the Colonna, Pompeo Bishop of Riti, a soldier made into a priest against his will, exhorted the Roman people to take the government of the city upon themselves, and was ready to play the part of Rienzi, when Julius suddenly recovered in spite of, or because of, the wine which he insisted on drinking. His death would have altered the politics of Europe, so important a factor had the temporal power now become. It would also have saved the church from a small abortive schism. On September the 1st, 1511, a handful of dissentient cardinals, reinforced by some French bishops and abbots, met at Pisa in the guise of a general council. They soon found it advisable to gather more closely under the wing of the French king by retiring to Milan, whose contemporary chronicler says that he does not think their proceedings worth the ink it would take to record them. The principal result was the convocation by Julius of a genuine council at the Lateran, which was actually opened on May the 10th, 1512. A step deserving to be called bold, since there was in general nothing that popes abhorred so much as a general council, significant as an admission that the church needed to be rehabilitated, politic, because Julius' breach of his election promise to summon a council was the ostensible ground of the convocation of the Pism. Julius would have commenced the campaign of 1512 with the greatest chances of success if his operations had been more skillfully combined, but the Swiss invasion of Lombardy, on which he had relied, was over, before his own movements had begun. Scarcely had the Swiss, discouraged by want of support, withdrawn across the Alps, when Julius' army, consisting chiefly of Spaniards under Ramon de Cardona, but with a papal contingent under the papal legate Cardinal de' Medici, afterwards Leo X, presented itself before Bologna. In the ordinary course of things, Bologna would have fallen, but the French were commanded by a great military genius, the useful Gaston de Faux, whose life and death alike demonstrated that human personality counts for much, and that history is not a matter of mere abstract law. By skillful manoeuvres, Gaston compelled the Allies to withdraw into the Romagna, and then, April the 11th, entirely overthrew them in the great fight of Ravenna, most picturesque of battles pictorial in every detail, from the stalwart figure of the revolted Cardinal Sanseverino, turning out in complete armor to smite the Pope, to the capture of Cardinal de' Medici by Greeks in French service, and the death of the young hero himself, as he strove to crown his victory by the annihilation of the solid Spanish infantry. Had he lived, he would soon have been in Rome, and the Pope, unless he submitted, must have become a captive in France or a refugee in Spain. Julius resisted the cardinals who beset him with clamors for peace, but his galleys were being equipped for flight when Giulio de' Medici, afterwards Clement the Seventh, arrived as a messenger from his cousin, the captive legate, 
with such a picture of the discord among the victors after Gaston's death, that Pope and Cardinals breathed again. Within a few weeks the French were recalled to Lombardy by another Swiss invasion. The German mercenaries, of whom their forces largely consisted, deserted them at the command of the emperor, and the army that might have stood at the gates of Rome actually abandoned Milan, and with it all the conquests of recent years. The anti-papal council fled into France, and Cardinal Medici was rescued by the Lombard peasantry. The Duke of Urbino, who, estranged from the Pope by the summary justice he had exercised upon Cardinal Alidossi, had for a time kept aloof, and afterwards been on the point of joining the French, now came forward to provide Julius with another army. The Bentimoli fled from Bologna, and the papal troops further occupied Parma and Piacenza. But Julius thought nothing done so long as the Duke of Ferrara retained his dominions. The Duke came in person to Rome to deprecate his wrath, protected by a safe conduct and accompanied by his own liberated captive, Fabrizio Colonna. Julius received him kindly, freed him from all spiritual censures, but was inflexible in temporal matters. The surrender of the duchy he must, and would have. Alfonso proving equally firm, the Pope so far forgot himself as to threaten him with imprisonment. But Fabrizio Colonna, declaring his own reputation at stake, procured his escape, and escorted him safely back. Such instances of a nice sense of personal honor are not infrequent in the annals of the age, and afford a refreshing contrast to the general political immorality. An event was now about to happen, which, although he was not the chief agent in it, contributed most of all to confer on Julius the proud title of Deliverer of Italy. It was necessary to decide the fate of the Duchy of Milan, which Ferdinand and Maximilian wished to give to their grandson, the Archduke Charles, afterwards the Emperor Charles V. Julius had not driven the French out in order to put the Spaniards and Austrians in. He demanded the restoration of the expelled Italian dynasty in the person of Massimiliano Sforza. Fortunately, the decision of the question lay with the Swiss, who, from motives of money and policy, took the side of Sforza, and he was installed accordingly. All must have seen that this arrangement was a mere makeshift, but the restoration, however precarious, of an Italian dynasty to an Italian state, so long usurped by the foreigner, was enough to cover Julius with glory. He had unquestionably in this instance done his duty as an Italian sovereign, and men did not over-nicely consider how impotent he would have been without foreign aid, and how substantial an advantage he was obtaining for himself by the annexation of Parma and Piacenza, long held by the ruler of Milan, but now discovered to have been bequeathed to the church by the Countess Matilda four hundred years before. A deplorable contemporary event meanwhile passed, almost unnoticed in the general joy, at the expulsion of the French, and the unprecedented development of the Pope's temporal power. This was the subversion of the Florentine Republic and the restoration of the Medici, discreditable to the Spaniards who achieved it, and to the Pope who permitted it, but chiefly to the Florentines themselves. Their weakness and levity, 
the memory of the early Medician rulers, the feeling that since their expulsion Florence had been no strong defense or worthy example to Italy, and the fact that no foreigner was placed in possession, mitigated the indignation and alarm naturally aroused by such a catastrophe. It was not foreseen that in after years a Medician pope would accept the maintenance of his family in Florence by way of consideration for the entire sacrifice of the independence of Italy. The time of Julius' removal from the scenes of earth was approaching, and it was well for him. The continuance of his life and of his reputation would hardly have been compatible. He was about to show, as he had shown before, that, however attached in the abstract to the liberty of Italy, he was always willing to postpone this to his own projects. He had too especially at heart the subjugation of Ferrara and the success of the Lateran Council, which he had convoked to eclipse the schismatical Council of Pisa. For this the support of the Emperor Maximilian was necessary, for the council which had already begun to deliberate might appear hardly more respectable than its rival, if it was ignored by both France and Germany. As a condition, Maximilian insisted on concessions from the Venetians, whom the Pope ordered to surrender Verona and Vicenza, and to hold Padua and Treviso as fiefs of the empire. The Venetians refused, and Julius threatened them with excommunication. Fortunately for his fame, the stroke was delayed until it was too late. He had long been suffering from the complication of infirmities. At the end of January 1513, he took to his bed. On February the 4th, he professed himself without hope of recovery. On February the 20th, he received the last sacraments, and he died on the following day. Goethe says that every man abides in our memory in the character under which he has last been prominently displayed. The last days of Julius II exhibited him to the most advantage. He addressed the cardinals with dignity and tenderness. He deplored his faults and errors without descending to particulars. He spoke of the schismatics with forbearance, yet with unbending resolution. He ordered the reissue of his regulations against simony in pontifical elections, and gave many wholesome admonitions respecting the future conclave. On foreign affairs he seems not to have touched. His death evoked the most vehement demonstrations of popular sorrow. Never, says Paris de Crassus, who, as papal master of the ceremonies, was certain to be well informed, had there been at the funeral of any pope anything like the concourse of persons of every age, sex and rank, thronging to kiss his feet, and imploring with cries and tears the salvation of him, who had been a true Pope of Rome and Vicar of Christ, maintaining justice, augmenting the Church, and warring upon and putting down tyrants and enemies. Many to whom his death might have been deemed welcome lamented him with abundant tears, as they said, This Pope has delivered us all, all Italy and all Christendom, from the hands of the Gauls and barbarians. This enthusiastic panegyric would have been moderated, if the secret springs of Julius' policy had been better known, if it had been understood how fortune, rather than wisdom, had stood his friend through life, and if the inevitably transitory character of his best work had been perceived. A national dynasty might be restored to Milan, 
but it could not be kept there, nor could it prove aught but the puppet of the foreigner, while it remained. The fate of Italy had been sealed long ago, when she refused to participate in the movement of coalescence which was consolidating disjointed communities into great nations. These nations had now become great military monarchies, for which a loose bundle of petty states was no match. A Cesare Borgia might possibly have saved her, if he had wrought at the beginning of the fifteenth century instead of the end. Venice did something, but she was essentially a maritime power, and her possessions on the mainland were in many respects a source of weakness. The only considerable approach to consolidation was the establishment of the papal temporal power, of which Alexander and Julius were the chief architects. While the means employed in its creation were often most condemnable, the creation itself was justified by the helpless condition of the papacy without it, and by the useful end it was to serve when it became the only vestige of dignity and independence left to Italy. End of section 25